The title of this message is Destiny of the True Believer. And I have to tell you up front, this is going to be a heavily doctrinal message. There's lots of theology in today's message. And uh, there will be slides up on the screen uh, for you to follow. But uh, it is a fair thing to warn you ahead of time that this is going to have lots of doctrine in it. And uh, so hopefully uh, that will be a blessing to you. Romans chapter 8, as we look at it from the bird's eye view, it's about the believer's life in Christ, which is a life in the Spirit. That's the subject of the chapter. Chapter 8 of Romans stands in stark contrast to the miserable cycle of sin and frustration and failure that is found in Romans 7. In fact, when you compare the two chapters, Romans 7 being the chapter that characterizes the believer living in the strength of his own flesh and finding failure there, chapter 8 describing the believer living in the power of the Spirit and finding victory there, you find that 32 times in chapter 7 the word I is used. That's the problem. Believers that live in the failure of their flesh and are experiencing the cycle of sin and failure, they have an eye problem. And the problem is the dependence upon self. But in Romans 8, you find that the word I is not emphasized at all. The word spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, is referred to 21 times, in fact, in the 8th chapter. And the 8th chapter starts out with these wonderful words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful words, no condemnation. The word is katakrima in Greek. No judgment or sentence against the believer who is in Christ Jesus. Which is significant because those who are going through the learning curve of discovering the victory of the Spirit in Romans 8 and who are experiencing the cycles of sin and unbelief and failure of chapter 7, please be encouraged, God would say to us by the Spirit. He would say, please be encouraged, even though you're going through these cycles of sin, frustration, and failure, I have nothing against you. There is no condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. I understand the process. I understand the cycle. I am not angry with you at all. I know about this inner struggle, and you need to understand I have justified you through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Satan loves to get us thinking that God is angry with us. Even if we sin volitionally or on purpose. Satan loves to convince us, or try to anyway, that God doesn't love us, that we're miserable failures, miserable people, not worth anything. Romans 8.1 says no. There is no sentence of judgment. There is no condemnation against those that are in Christ Jesus. The key is, are you in Christ Jesus? There is a difference between being condemned by Satan and being convicted by the Lord. Condemnation drives me away from the Lord. The Pharisee's finger pointing right in my face. It drives me away from the Lord. It causes me to focus on self. And it is involved with false guilt. Things that aren't true. Things I didn't even really do. Sins of commission or sins of omission. Whereas conviction is entirely different, it comes from the Holy Spirit, not from Satan. It drives me to the Lord. It causes me to focus upon Christ and not upon myself. And if the Lord convicts us, it is a conviction having to do with things that I actually did wrong. Things that I didn't do that I should have done, perhaps. And that's the emphasis of the Spirit as he convicts us. There's a hope involved with conviction. There's despair involved with condemnation. And that's how we understand the difference between the two. Ray Stedman, in his commentary on the book of Romans, says this. When we believe what God says about us and see ourselves in a new way, then we will change the way we act. 
This is always God's way of deliverance. We think that we have to change the way we act in order to be different. God says, no, I've made you different, and when you believe it, you will automatically change the way you act. And what God wants us to believe as we start out with Romans 8 is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's wonderful justification, and that's the theme of Romans, really, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that the just shall live by faith. We are justified just as if we'd never sinned. God has declared the believing sinner to be righteous on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead. Justification. We've been justified, those who have trusted Christ. Now we come to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Let's read the passage, and then we'll get into this wonderful concept of the destiny of the true believer. Romans 8, 28 reads this way. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The passage begins with that well-known statement, God works all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. I suppose we should be grieved by the fact that this verse is usually misquoted, not because it's inaccurately repeated, but because parts of it are omitted. Usually the verse is flippantly quoted even by people who aren't believers and they say, well, you know, God works all things together. So that's one variation of it. Or they'll say, God works all things together for good. There's another variation of it. But it's rarely completed in full. God works all things together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. This promise is only true of a certain class of people that live on the planet. And that class of people for whom Romans 8.28 is true is that class of people that can be described by these words, those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. All other human beings don't have the advantage and the benefit of Romans 8.28, the idea that God works all things together for good. But those who are true believers and who love God and who are indeed the called according to his purpose, these are the ones that can claim the glory of Romans 8.28 and say, yes, God does work all things together for good in my life because that's who he is and that's what he's capable of and nothing is wasted with our God. Wonderful passage of scripture, often quoted, often applied, often relied upon, and often found to be true by those who love the Lord. There's a story that sort of illustrates this. It's a Chinese fable, and the title of the fable is A Loss Might Turn Out to Be a Gain. It's a story of a Chinese man who had a beautiful white horse. He was poor. And many people in his village urged him to sell this beautiful white horse and he could live off the proceeds. But he refused. He didn't want to sell the horse. Well, one day the horse was missing. No one could find it. And someone said they saw the horse running outside of the border of the country and so they came to the old man and to comfort him and chastise him for his unfortunate loss. He should have sold the horse. But the old man said as he was very calm, and as he said it, he said, how do you know that this is a bad thing? It may actually be good. Well, one night, later on, the old man heard the sound of horses running outside of his house and in the field, and he got up to see, and he saw not only the white horse, but another beautiful horse with it, and it was clear what had happened. 
the beautiful white horse, his horse, had gone and found another horse and brought it back home with him. So now he had two horses. And all the neighbors came and congratulated him on his good luck. Now you have two horses. Your white horse has got you another horse. You're even more wealthy than you were before. But the old man was very calm and thoughtful. He said, it's true. I got a new horse for nothing. But how do you know that this is a good thing? It may turn out to be a bad thing. True enough, because later on, uh, the old man's son was very fond of the new horse that had been brought home, and he used to ride it and loved riding it. But the horse threw him, and he broke both of his legs very badly, and he was crippled, and he couldn't walk well after that. And it was sort of a misfortunate turn of events. So all the neighbors came, and they wanted to console him. Your only son's broken his legs, and now in your old age you have no one to help you. You're poorer than ever. And the old man said, how do you know this is bad? It may end up being good. <laughs> Which was also true enough, because eventually that area got attacked by another tribe uh, of, of soldiers from another region. And all the able-bodied young men were forced to come into the military and fight against the invaders, and nine out of ten men in that village died. But this old man's son, because he was crippled, couldn't join the fighting, and so he didn't have to go, and so the young man survived, and the old man did have somebody to take care of him in his old age. And then, of course, they came to him and said, congratulations, you're alive. And, you know, the story just keeps going and going and going, you know. But the point is this, is that we don't know in the short term whether the things that are going on in our lives are for the good or for the bad because we're myopic. We can only see in a certain real small circle of vision. Like Jacob when uh, you know, he had become convinced that his son Joseph was dead and he hadn't seen him for, what, 13 plus uh, 5 or so or seven years or so. He hadn't seen him for 20 years or more. And, uh, you know, now his sons tell him that you've got to bring back your other young son, Benjamin, to the man in Egypt, because if that man in Egypt doesn't see Benjamin, then, uh, you know, you're not going to see your son Simeon ever again. And so Jacob says, all these things are against me. Joseph is no more. They want to take my son Benjamin. He's not going to be anymore. All these things are against me. But little did Jacob know that it was only going to be a short period of time before he would not only see Joseph again, but he and his entire family would be rescued from the ravages of famine and they would be able to live in the land of Egypt and prosper and grow into a nation not of 70 souls, but of two and a half million or more souls over the period of 400 years. Joseph, or Jacob didn't see that. He couldn't see it. Uh, and that's often our problem as we look at our circumstances. We only see the short-term picture. I'm convinced that when it seems like life deals the Christian who loves the Lord and is a called according to his purpose, deals him or her a real tough set of circumstances. I'm convinced that God does work all things together for good, and I also am convinced that God has the power to turn very unfortunate misfortunes into things that are a whole different plan altogether. My wife and I each have our own experience with that, which is part of the reason why we're together. But all I'll say about that at this point is that uh, there was a plan A that God had for our lives that didn't seem to quite work out. And so what did he do? He made another plan, a plan A. Another plan A. That's what he did. He made another plan A. The first one didn't quite work out, so he made another plan A. And I think that with the Lord, there's a lot of plan A's that he does. Just one plan A replaced by another plan A. He works all things together after the counsel of his own good. And that's what the Bible teaches, and that's, of course, what we discover as we grow in the Lord and walk with him. So the question this morning is, how do we know that Romans 8.28 is true? How do we know? 
We have experience of it being true over, over a number of years, but how, how can we be sure biblically and theologically that it's true? And the answer is found, of course, in the truth of the gospel, which is explained in these verses that we read. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And then in verses 29 and 30, he explains the eternal truth of the gospel message. That's how we know. And how we know that that's connected to verse 28 is the use of that little word for in verse 29. We know that God works all things together for good and then quoting the whole verse and then verse 29 begins, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined and justified and called and glorified. Let's talk about this great gospel, the destiny of the true believer. It tells us in verse 29 that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The word foreknew is the word in, in the original language, prognosco. It means to know beforehand. He foreknew us. And there's no question about this. This is biblical doctrine. This is biblical theology. God foreknew us. What that means is he knew what would happen before it occurred. It's very simple. He knew everything that would happen. He even knew our choices that we would make before the choices were made. This speaks of the idea, the attribute of God called omniscience. He is omniscience. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. And you think about it now, how could that be? How could God know everything and still allow free will? But before we answer the free will part, how could he not know everything? If God is God, how could it be possible that there's something that he doesn't know? Either past, present, or future. If there's something that God doesn't know, then by definition, he's not God. Because he's incomplete. There's something about him that is deficient, incomplete, not quite up to the standard that we would expect of a being that the Bible describes as being all-knowing. In Acts, the 15th chapter, in verse 18, it says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. From his eternal perspective, remember now, time is something that God created. And after he created time, he created the universe. And after he created, and as he was creating the universe, he created the galaxies, and specifically the Milky Way galaxy, and then our particular solar system, and then the planets that belong to our solar system, and then the one planet that can sustain life, human life, in our solar system, and probably in any solar system anywhere in the universe, Earth itself. And then upon earth, he put human beings and said, be fruitful and multiply. And that God who did all of those things, that, that God who created time, he created time to be a very temporary situation. If this whole wall, infinitely extending out into all directions, up, down, and across, if that represented eternity, then what would be the representation of time on that wall? Maybe that. That's time in relationship to eternity. We live here in that little dot called time, which is going to wrap itself up and end when the eternal state comes back into play with the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. From God's perspective in eternity, he looks at the things that are in the realm of time in that little dot, past, present, and future, and he knows it all. How could he not know it all? He's God. And he foreknew us. There's nothing that can be known that God does not know. Great is the Lord and mighty in power, Psalm 147 says, and his understanding is infinite. That is, it's without limit. Well, whom he foreknew, it tells us in verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn or preeminent one among many brethren. 
So here's that huge word, predestined. Oh, most believers are terrified of this word, but they don't need to be. It's not a terrifying word at all. It's a wonderful word. It's a theological word. It's a biblical word. It describes a determination that God has made. The Greek word is praorisen. It comes from another Greek word, praorizo, which means simply to establish boundaries or limits. The word horizo is the word which means to establish boundaries. The prefix pra is the word which means before or to pre-establish. So the word itself means to pre-establish boundaries or limits. Now what is it that God pre-established? Let's read the verse carefully. What he pre-established is that those whom he foreknew That is, those whom he knew would make a decision to come into Christ and so on and so forth and believing in him, be true believers. He predetermined, he didn't predetermine their salvation. He didn't predetermine whether they'd be in heaven or hell. What he predetermined of that individual is that those who believed would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. That's the only thing predetermined. In other words, he didn't predetermine that they would look like Cro-Magnon man or that they would look like Neanderthal, that they would look like, uh, what was the name of that ape on the planet of the apes? Uh, You know, the, the, huh? Caesar. He wouldn't look like Caesar or wouldn't look like an orangutan or anything like that. Those who would believe, he foreknew that they would be conformed And he determined that they would be conformed into the image of his son. That's what he predetermined. There's no mention here of any selecting some to go to heaven and selecting some to go to hell. That's foreign to the passage and foreign to the New Testament. What he did predetermine is that those that would believe would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's who they would look like. That's what they would be. That's what their destiny would be all about. Those whom God saved have a certain destiny. He has one goal for each and every one of us. It doesn't doesn't differ. Every true believer, God has the same goal for each of us. His goal is that we be more and more like his eternal son. And the reason for that, as stated in the passage, is that he wants more brothers and sisters for Jesus. In other words, he wanted to expand his family. That's why... All of this happened. That's why he created man in his image. That's why he said, be fruitful and multiply. He wanted to expand those that would be like his son so that his son would have brothers and sisters, so that his family would be expanded, so that there would be now many, many others for whom he could show his amazing love, grace, and nature and character in every way. And this is something that he does for the true believer forever and ever and ever for all eternity Ephesians 2 chapter 2 I think it's in verse 7 says that in the ages to come he's going to show to us the exceeding greatness of his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ he'll never run out of things that he can show us about himself because he's without limit there's no limit to who he is in any of his characteristics so that's what we have to look forward to And God wanted a race of people, human beings, that would be made in his image for whom he could do these things. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. And it's the same plan for every single true believer. In other words, God desires to always increase the size of his family. Eternally, God the Father has the best possible son. Jesus. The eternal word... The eternal Son, the Word, the eternal Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, God the Father has the best possible Son, and he wants more that are like them, him. This is so that he might love them in the kingdom just as he loves Jesus and has loved Jesus eternally. The People's New Testament Commentary puts it this way, What did God predestinate of them? Not that they should love God, Not that they should believe. 
nor that some should be saved and others damned, but that those whom he saw beforehand would love God, should be conformed to the image of his Son. The only thing predestinated or foreordained is that those who love God as revealed in Christ should become Christ-like in life and like Christ in eternity. This is the only decree in the passage. That's what the Bible says. We don't have to amplify it beyond that. That's as grand and glorious as it, as it ever needs to be. This is incredible news for us. This is what God has in mind. You could fast forward into the eternal state, and this is what we would see. We would see an entire class of human beings in God's image that are chips off the old block that look like Jesus. That's what we'd see. And that's what he's doing in time, and that's what he has in mind in eternity. Well, who he predestined, verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And that means to be summoned by God or invited. He called human beings to come to Christ. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. He's called them to come out of death and into life. His invitation, his calling, was to believe the gospel message. Now somebody objects and they say, this is not right. How can, how can a person not receive credit for believing this gospel message? Doesn't your Bible say that it's by grace that we are saved? And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. Isn't that what your Bible says? Yes, that's what the Bible says. Well, then how can man not receive credit for this? And the answer is simple. God invited. God said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you. My son has come, it's a fact of history. He died on the cross, it's a fact of history. No one could find anything wrong with him. Nobody can accuse him of any sin because he didn't commit any. It's a fact of history. Jesus predicted that he was going to rise from the dead. That's a fact of history. He rose from the dead three days later. That's a fact of history. He ascended into heaven, a fact of history. He sent the Holy Spirit uh, in, by the Father answering his prayer to come to the, whole, to the world to help us and give us power. That's a fact of history. And through those facts of history, we have the good news of the message of Christ. And God says, listen, my invitation to you is believe it and you'll have eternal life. Put your confidence in this free gift and accept it and you'll have eternal life. That's my invitation. How could I possibly receive any credit for simply receiving a gift. There's no credit to be, to be gained or claimed at all. Because after all, before I came to Christ, I didn't want him. So he, by the Spirit of God, convicted me of my need for Christ and drew me to himself. And then when I got to that place where Jesus was there making his invitation and I saw that the Spirit of God was drawing me and showing me that this gospel is the greatest thing in the world to believe and all of a sudden I mean in my own life one day I'm just doing everything I was doing for years living a horrible sinful life and the next day inexplicably I wanted to believe this gospel and commit my entire life to Jesus now that's what the way it seemed then, like one day and then one day. Looking back now, I can see that the Lord was drawing over a whole lifetime. And sort of, you know, like he had set the hook early in my life, and he just like slowly reeling me in, you know, slowly getting me there. So he invited, he convicted, he showed me Jesus, he brought the gospel message, he sent Jesus to do what he did, he raised him from the dead, and then he says to me and to you, all you need to do is receive it. I mean, really receive this message, receive this person of Christ, and I'll give you eternal life, and I'll make you different than you've ever been before, and I'll give you a destiny that you can't even believe. If I were to tell you now what it is, 
you wouldn't even believe it's true because it's too glorious to even imagine. No credit. I'm claiming no credit. I used to say, well, I became a Christian when, and I accepted Christ then, and I, 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 I. And now I say, you know what, I'm so glad the Lord rescued me. <laughs> he pulled me up out of the fire, man, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on solid ground. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's his invitation. He sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Some were not willing to come, unfortunately, and so they did not. Well, those whom he called, it tells us in verse 30, these he also justified. He justified them, meaning he declared them to be, A, not guilty, and B, righteous. And we make a mistake if we think that when he justified us, the only thing he did was declare us to be not guilty and exonerated us from our sins. Far deeper than that. Not only did he declare us not guilty, but he also proclaimed us to be righteous. He gave us the gift of righteous, a right standing before him. Now listen to this, folks. This is huge. He says to the believer, he declares to the believer that that believer in Christ has the same righteousness as his own son has before him. How, how firm and how solid is the standing or the position of the Lord Jesus Christ before his father? That's how firm our standing is with the Father as well, because he's given us that righteousness as a gift. Justification by faith, my favorite definition, is the act of God by which he declares the believing sinner to be righteous on the basis of the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It's something he does. It's something he declares. He justifies us. He exonerates us, and he makes us holy, acceptable, to him, We have the same righteous standing as does the Son of God. This is the gospel message. Taught here in the book of Romans, from chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5. And if you study those verses and make them become part of you, you'll see how this doctrine of justification by faith is proven and demonstrated in the scriptures. Romans 3.24 says we've been justified freely, that is without cost, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Great cost to us, or no cost to us, great cost to God. We didn't pay anything. We came without any money. We couldn't pay anything. But it cost God everything. It cost him the gift of his son. That's justification. There's that amazing parable that Jesus spoke to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men, he said, went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood as he prayed and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not unjust, I'm not extortioner, I'm not an adulterer. I especially thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But the tax collector was over there somewhere, and he too stood, but he would not lift his eyes up to heaven. He was ashamed of himself. But instead his head was slumped down low and he beat upon his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you truly, this man, the tax collector, the beat upon his breast, I'm a sinner fellow, he went away to his house justified. But the Pharisee who trusted in himself, he went away condemned. Because Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be abased, brought low, 
but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Justified. Aren't you glad that the tax collector in the parable was justified and in real life many tax collectors were justified? Gives us hope. That means I could be justified <laughs> because I'm like the tax collector. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified, finishing up verse 30. Now this is the grandest yet. And hard to wrap our mind around it, the word glorified is the Greek word doxaxo, which means to render or esteem glorious, to glorify, to honor, to magnify. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he made them full of glory. In their glorified state, they look nothing like they did on earth. I mean, we look around and we know by faith that those true believers that are around us are justified and are called and are foreknown and all these things, they have a wonderful future ahead of them and we can preach confidently at their funerals because we knew them, we knew their commitment to Christ so we can say they're, they're in heaven, they're beholding the Lord's face right now. But before the Lord they look nothing like they look now. This is an unglorified state. That will be the glorified state. In the eternal state, those whom God glorifies are as glorious as Jesus is glorified right now. See, how do you know that? Well, look at 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are the sons of God, yet it does not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the promise of the gospel. As glorious as Jesus is glorious. So don't look at the, at the Jesus depicted in the gospels as what God means by glorious, as glorious as he is in the gospels and as glorious as he was in the gospels. But look at Revelation chapter 1. That's the glorified Christ. Where John sees Jesus in the eternal state. He sees him in heaven. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. And out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like a fiery sun in its strength. His, his clothes were white like wool. His feet were like burnished brass. And I mean, everything about him was just glorious. It was stunning. And, and John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, he just crumpled to the ground like one who had died. But the Lord spoke to him and said, don't be afraid, John. <laughs> I'm the first and the last. He touched him and laid his hand on him and John got up. The glorious Son of God, seen in Revelation chapter 1, that's what God has in mind those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Jesus had prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the same glory that I had with you before the world was ever created. That's the glory he has again. That's the glory that's his now. And that's the glory that God has for each and every true believer. Now, one thing I want you to notice here, and this is sort of the coup d'etat, on this incredible passage of scripture. Every one of these verbs is in the past tense. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. They're all in the past tense. That's very significant in the Greek language. It's the tense which means completed action in eternity with implications in time. A completed action. In the mind of God, the true believer has already had all of this happen to him or her. In the mind of God, the true believer is already glorified. How does it play itself out? I can't tell you for sure because I've never experienced what it means to live in eternity. But I have a guess, and this is my opinion, if in this very next nanosecond, and that was slower than a nanosecond. In this very next 
twinkling of an eye, and that's slower than a nanosecond. And this very next nanosecond, if, the, if a true believer were transported into the eternal state and into the presence of God, he would see himself there already. Why? Because he's already been glorified. It's a done deal. It's happened. In the mind of God, from his eternal perspective, it's happened already. This is, our, this is where we're going. It's like living our life backwards. We look at what we're, what we're headed toward and what God has in mind for him. Eye has not seen, and I understand I'm taking this a little bit out of context. Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them by his spirit through his word, right? So we live our lives backwards. We consider what it is that we're headed toward. And the final destination point that God already has in his mind, and we think, okay, if that's the reality, which it is, then how then shall we now live in the present? I mean, it's a game changer. It, it changes everything. And, and we look at the, the blips on the screen, and we look at the, the alterations in our course, and we look at the hard things that come and the persecution and the trials and the difficulties and the pain and the sufferings and the sorrows and we think that's all part of that. This is all part of that because God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. It's all heading in an incredible direction. Earlier in chapter 8 and verse 18 Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not worthy to be compared. Put them in a balance. Okay, this part of the balance has sufferings of this present time. And man, this is how we feel those sufferings. The weight takes it down to the ground. There's nothing that could go on this side of the scales that could make this side of the scales rise up, we think. They're just too intense. They're too difficult. But Paul says, no, there is something you can put on this side of the scales that will make this rise up strong. And that is the glory that should be revealed in us. And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. There's no contest. There's no way to con compare it at all. That's what God has in mind for us. So we're just going to read these next verses and not hardly comment on, on them at all. But this is, this is Paul's conclusion after all that he said. And really, the doctrinal, major doctrinal part of the epistle is done here as far as explaining the gospel at verse 30 of Romans 8. But then he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What's our response to this truth? What's our conclusion if God is for us, who can be against us? I love that. <laughs> Here's how, how Paul the Apostle, by the Spirit of God, summarizes all of this. God is for us. Can we be convinced of that? Can you be convinced of that? Instead of misinterpreting God or blaming God or indicting God when hard things happen, just know right out of the gate... God is for us. He's for you. He's for me. He's not angry at you. He's not angry at me. He doesn't spend any mental energy at all thinking about how to be vindictive against you or me. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and tender mercies. That's who he is. He's for us. Unfortunately for many, it's a con constant question. Is God for me? My circumstances don't always seem to be favorable. So how do I know God is for me? And listen, there's, the, there's one primary way to know God is for us, and that's the gospel that we just talked about in verses 29 and 30. That's how we know. Our confidence is rooted in the truth of the gospel, and we believe it. 
I remember going through a difficult time, and I also remember Pastor Chuck Smith's words that he would teach us. He said, when you're going through things that you do not understand, never put your confidence in what you don't understand. But always go to what you know to be true for sure and lean on that. That's a paraphrase of what he taught. So I thought, what do I know for sure? I know foreknown, called, justified, predetermined to be conformed into the image of God's Son and glorified. I know that for sure. I know God loves me. I know God's for me. And I know he's a heck of a lot smarter than I am. And he knows how to take these things and work them together for good, for my good. I knew that. So I wasn't going to give up what I knew for sure for what I didn't know for sure. Like, what's this going to mean next year? Or how does this circumstance jive with what's supposed to happen next month? I didn't know any of that because it hadn't happened yet. But I knew that God's for me. It's like the old flower thing, you know, when you're, you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend or somebody you like in the junior high and you get a flower, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And hopefully by the end of the thing, you fall on the right side of it. And some people handle their relationship with God like that. Now, forget the flower. All of the petals say he loves me. So what should we say if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, it's also risen, risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughtered. for him. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors, super conquerors, the word is, through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Hallelujah and Amen. That's good stuff. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator of the 18th 18th century said troubles neither cause nor show any abatement of his love whatever believers may be separated from enough remains none can take Christ from the believer none can take the believer from him and that is enough the destiny of the true believer we scratch the surface It's huge. It's immense. And believing what God has said about us is key for us to becoming what God plans for us. It's key. Believe that. Believe the truth. There are so many sources of lies everywhere around us. The culture lies. The world lies. The devil lies. Nothing can be relied upon except for what God himself says. And the only thing that's true about us is what God says ultimately about us. Others may confirm it. Others may say something that is consistent with what God says, and in that thing they're right. But when anyone or anything says something about us that is inconsistent with what God says, they are abjectly wrong and are not to be believed. The truth shall set us free. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the amazing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in your mind and in your heart and in your knowledge, you knew what you would do. You knew how you would reconcile 
the world to yourself through your son and those who would believe this great message would be given your authority to become sons and daughters of God with all of the important and related realities of what that means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amazing. And we stand in awe of that and we thank you for it and ask that the Spirit of God would help us. Because we know what your word says. It says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're the children of God. We know that's true. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make these things powerfully profound in our experience, in our hearts, so that we know that we know them. So we pray that the Spirit of God would do that for us. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. Bear witness to us, Father, by your Spirit. And if there's anyone here among us this morning, Heavenly Father, that you know has not yet accepted this offer of salvation and this offer to be reconciled to you and begin the process of being like Jesus, if anybody's not accepted that yet, we pray for them. We pray that the Spirit of God would remove the blinding influences from their minds because your word says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbeliever, lest the light of the gospel should shine into them and they should be saved. So Lord, we know that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, and we know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So because of, of knowing that, we ask you that you would remove the blinding influences from the minds of anyone who have not yet believed here in this meeting, so that they might see Jesus and see the beauty of the gospel and be drawn to saying yes or to be given the freedom to say yes or no. We ask you this, Father, knowing that it's your will. We pray for Calvary Chapel Manteca as has been prayed before. We pray that this body of believers would increase in wisdom and assurance and in spiritual fruitfulness that you, Father, would be glorified in and through the lives of your people living out their lives here in the Central Valley. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that even during times of struggle and difficulty or times of failure, as we've tried to live the Christian life but have come up short, we're frustrated by that. We get angry at ourselves. We thank you that even in those times, there is no condemnation against us. So again, we ask you to fill us with your spirit. We thank you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, shall we stand together?